0: Assalamu alaikum and Eid Mubarak. Welcome back to Season 5 of the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. In this series, we are discussing the events of World War I that led to the partition of the Ottoman Empire. This is Episode 521, Russians and Ottomans. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. Outnumbered and fighting on two fronts, Germany is looking for a way to quickly end the war. They decide to reinstate unlimited submarine warfare, angering U.S. President Woodrow Wilson. Germany secretly seeks an alliance with Mexico in the Zimmerman telegram. The secret gets out and the U.S. declares war on Germany. Estimating they have a year before American troops arrive, Germany plots to get Russia out of the war. And with that, let's begin our discussion of the Russian Revolution. Russia and the Ottoman Empire Before World War I, the Ottoman Empire and Russia had fought several wars against each other. The Ottoman Empire lost most of these wars, contributing to its steady decline. The primary reason for these wars was Russia's desire for a warm water port. The Black Sea was Russia's only access to the Mediterranean region. The Black Sea is connected to the Sea of Marmara by the Bosphorus Strait, and the Sea of Marmara is connected to the Aegean Sea by the Dardanelles Strait. And the Aegean Sea leads to the Mediterranean Sea. However, in the late 1600s, the Ottoman Empire was at its peak and controlled the Black Sea, the Aegean Sea, and both the Bosporus and Dardanelles Straits. Hence, the Ottoman Empire kept Russia bottled up to the north with no access to the Mediterranean. One of the earliest conflicts between Russia and the Ottomans came in 1676 when they fought over control of the Ukraine and the northern shores of the Black Sea. This war lasted about four years and ended with a stalemate. Russia and the Ottoman Empire agreed to split the Ukraine between them. Despite this treaty, Russia joined a Christian coalition against the Ottomans in 1686. In addition to Russia, this alliance included Venice, Poland-Lithuania, the Holy Roman Empire, which was the precursor to the German Empire, and the Habsburg Monarchy— the precursor to Austria-Hungary. Known as the Great Turkish War, this proved to be the beginning of the decline for the Ottoman Empire. The Ottomans lost most of its territory in Central Europe and never recovered. However, the Ottomans retained control over the Black Sea, which continued to spark conflict with Russia for several more decades. Both empires traded bullets and land back and forth with neither side gaining a dominant position over the other. But this all changed when they fought again in the late 1700s. Russia defeated the Ottomans in 1768, walking away with two major ports, unrestricted access to the Black Sea, and the right to protect Ottoman Christians. Meanwhile, the Ottoman Empire lost Crimea and was forced to pay hefty reparations to Russia. This defeat proved the Ottomans were no longer a threat in Europe. Britain and France were now more concerned about Russia's ascendancy and growing power. Britain began limiting Russia's gains by propping up the Ottoman state just enough to act as a buffer. The two empires fought again ten years later in 1787. The Ottomans were hoping to regain land from Russia, but they were again defeated. Russia annexed Crimea and the Ottoman decline continued. Another war broke out in 1806. Russia was dealing with Napoleon Bonaparte at the time, but still seized more Black Sea territory from the Ottomans. When Napoleon's threat was over, Russia and the Ottoman Empire went back to fighting each other. It all started when Greece revolted against Ottoman rule in 1821. Britain, France, and Russia eventually allied with Greece against the Ottoman Empire. By the time it all ended in 1829, Greece was an independent nation, and Russia had gained more Black Sea territory along with Georgia and parts of Armenia. They fought again in 1856 in what became known as the Crimean War. To limit Russian territorial gains, Britain and France intervened on the side of the Ottomans. There were no significant land exchanges, but France obtained the right to protect Ottoman Catholics and Russia reasserted its right to protect Ottoman Orthodox Christians. The final war between the Ottomans and Russians before World War I took place in 1877. Though it lasted less than a year, it resulted in some of the largest territorial losses for the Ottoman Empire. Russia joined a Balkan alliance that included Bulgaria, Serbia, Montenegro, and Romania in a war of independence against the Ottomans. The alliance crushed the Ottomans and were close to invading Istanbul. But once again, Britain intervened, this time with the help of Austria-Hungary. With this final defeat, the Ottoman Empire lost much of its remaining territory in the Balkans. The Ottoman Decline In the 1600s, the Ottomans were one of the most powerful empires in the world. How did it become the sick man of Europe 200 years later? There are many reasons for the Ottoman decline and they go beyond the scope of this episode. But it is useful to understand some of the reasons the Ottomans fared so poorly against the Russians. One simple reason is that Russia had a larger population and Russia often allied with other European powers against the Ottomans. So the Ottomans were often outnumbered and fighting on multiple fronts. The Ottomans also had an inferior navy. Many of these wars were fought over access to the seas, but the Ottomans did not have a navy strong enough to defend its access to the sea. Yet its capital, Istanbul, overlooked one of the most important waterways in the region. The Ottoman Empire also suffered from a logistics problem. Other than the Nile, there were not many rivers within the empire. That meant most troops had to be transported by land. In the 1600s, the Ottomans, like everyone else, relied on animal power for land transportation. By the 1800s, Many European nations were building extensive railroad networks. But the Ottomans were far behind in this regard and still relied on horses and camels. Finally, the Ottomans suffered from the same sins that doomed most empires. Corruption, immorality, and entrenched bureaucracy. It started from the top. Most of the later Ottoman sultans spent more time in their imperial harems than dealing with matters of state. The sultans grew aloof and disconnected from their subjects who in turn relied more on local governments and religious figures. This disconnect between the central government and the people was made worse by the weakening position of the vizier. In the early years of the empire, the Ottoman vizier was the sultan's right-hand man. He managed the day-to-day operations of the empire and helped execute the sultan's grand vision. For the vizier to be effective, he had to be competent, incorruptible, and experienced. But he must also be willing to advise and correct his sultan when necessary. By the 1600s, the vizier was more concerned about staying alive than managing the empire. Ottoman viziers who exercised too much independence were dismissed, imprisoned, or even executed. This corruption in the higher offices of the empire eventually made its way to the military, and this was no more evident than in the decline of the Ottoman Janissaries. The Janissaries were like Mamluks in that they were a corps of elite warriors. The Janissaries were raised from childhood to be loyal to the Sultan and were among the best fighters in the world. Initially, the Janissaries were drawn from enslaved Christian boys. But over the centuries, this proved impractical and recruitment was open to free Muslims as well. Eventually, the influence of the Janissaries went beyond the battlefield. They enjoyed a privileged position in society and had amassed a great amount of wealth. Power and money can corrupt the best of men, and the Janissaries were no different. By the 1700s, anyone could buy their way into the Janissary Corps. As their ranks bloated, they became more concerned with politics than warfare. They were obsessed with maintaining their privileged status. They blocked critical reforms, further crippling the empire. They overthrew any sultan who dared to oppose them. The Janissaries were finally brutally disbanded and destroyed in 1826 by Sultan Mehmed II. The same corruption seeped into all parts of the Ottoman Empire, the judiciary, the treasury, and even the masjid. The result was an empire in rapid decay. The people at the top only cared to indulge themselves. The people at the bottom did not trust their government. Ethnic and religious minorities figured they could do better on their own. And the empire could do nothing to protect itself from its more aggressive neighbors. The Situation in Russia One may think Russia's military victories over the Ottomans meant they were a more advanced society. That is not exactly true. Russia's military successes were due to its stronger industrial sector, its larger population, and its Christian allies. The average Ottoman citizen enjoyed a standard of living the average Russian peasant could only dream of. For example, An unskilled laborer in Istanbul earned almost ten times the wages of an unskilled laborer in St. Petersburg. The Ottoman Empire was more liberal than Russia, and religious minorities enjoyed a remarkable level of freedom. Meanwhile, Jews in Russia were often the target of pogroms and faced discrimination at every turn. Russia was well behind the other European powers in terms of education, industrialization, and individual freedoms. It suffered from the same corruption and political inflexibility as the Ottomans. And just like the Ottoman Empire, Russia had no business getting involved in World War I. This was proven when Germany defeated Russia in several major battles. Russia lost Poland to Germany at the cost of millions of lives. Initially, Russia had done well on the battlefield, particularly against the Ottomans. As discussed in Episode 7, they defeated the Ottomans at the Battle of Sarakamish in 1915. Since then, Russia had pushed deep into Ottoman territory occupying nearly a fifth of the Anatolian Peninsula. Though it did not control the Dardanelles, Russia enjoyed naval superiority in the Black Sea. But its losses against Germany prompted Tsar Nicholas II to take direct command of the military against the advice of his generals. The Tsar believed his mere presence would motivate his soldiers and he'd lead them to glorious victory. Of course, that did not happen. The Russian military continued to suffer terrible defeats and high casualties. And now that Nicholas II was in charge, the blame fell on him. By 1917, things were dreadful in Russia. Russia's political situation was dreadful, its finances were in tatters, and its military was exhausted. Like the Ottomans, Russia's problems started at the top. Tsar Nicholas II of the Romanov dynasty was an autocrat. He held complete power over Russia's economy and politics. During his reign, he often dissolved parliament whenever they went against his wishes. This frustrated educated Russians as parliament was their only form of political expression. When the Tsar went to the front lines to lead the country's military, he left his wife, Empress Alexandra Fyodorovna in charge of the government. This was not a wise decision. Since Empress Alexandra was German, the people distrusted and hated her. Rasputin, a deviant and corrupt mystic, had a strange influence over the Empress, affecting many of her political decisions. And she just wasn't very good at the job. Russia's finances were also in bad shape. Though well behind other European nations, Russia had made significant economic advances since the beginning of the century, but the war had reversed most of them. Russia depended on the Dardanelles Strait to transport goods in and out of the country, but its war with the Ottomans had closed this avenue. With the closure of the Dardanelles came shortages, and with shortages came inflation. Prices increased while salaries stagnated and the value of the ruble fell. And with so many men leaving to fight the war, the Russian economy deteriorated even further. By 1917, Russia was facing famine which should have been impossible. It was a huge nation with abundant produce and large amounts of fertile land. However, corruption, greed, hoarding, and poor transportation kept food from getting to the regions that needed it most. Rather than fight the corruption or improve its transportation network, the government decided to ration food. Food rationing made things especially difficult in Russia's urban centers. As the situation in Russia worsened, demonstrations and protests started breaking out in Petrograd. Petrograd, now known as St. Petersburg, was the capital of Russia at the time. Located on the northwestern coast of Russia, Petrograd was over a thousand miles from the agricultural heartland. The economic downturn and food rations hit the capital especially hard. Some of the protests in Petrograd were organized by German-funded revolutionary groups seeking to topple the Tsar. But many of them were authentic, Organic expressions of frustration. On March 8, 1917, thousands of women marched through Petrograd in celebration of Women's Day. These marches encouraged a labor strike by the city's industrial workers. The next day, 200,000 protesters clogged the streets of Petrograd. Before long, the protests turned violent and riots broke out all over the city. Law and order broke down, the police were overwhelmed, and the capital came to a chaotic standstill. Tsar Nicholas II, hundreds of miles away on the front, ordered the military to bring the city under control. And he authorized the use of deadly force if necessary. Some army regiments fired on the protesters. Other regiments refused to do so and joined the protesters. With the military fighting against itself and the protesters, the city fell deeper into anarchy. Five days of this chaos passed before the Tsar finally decided to return to his capital. But when he arrived, he found all roads and rail lines entering the city blocked or destroyed. Tsar Nicholas II was stuck. He could not enter his capital, his soldiers had mutinied against him, and his generals did not want him on the front lines. His generals politely advised him to step down and allow someone else to run the country. At this moment, Nicholas II realized his choices were either abdication or face a military coup. He opted for the former, removed his son from the line of succession, and named his brother Michael as his replacement. The next day, Michael abdicated as well. Nicholas II and his family were put under house arrest and a provisional government was formed. These events took place in March 1917 of the Gregorian calendar. However, according to the Orthodox calendar that Russia followed, it was February 1917, which is why it's called the February Revolution. Lenin Returns to Russia Within weeks of the Tsar's abdication, Germany had Vladimir Lenin on a train to Russia. He arrived in April 1917. Taking control of his Bolsheviki movement, Lenin began working to overthrow the provisional government. Within a few months, the Bolsheviks had convinced most of the military factions to support them. By November 1917, the Bolsheviks controlled most of Petrograd. On December 17, 1917, the Bolsheviks signed an armistice agreement with the Central Powers. By the end of the year, the Bolsheviks controlled most of the country. In March 1918, the Bolsheviks signed a peace treaty with Germany and moved their capital to Moscow. In June 1918, the competing Russian factions began fighting each other. The Bolsheviks were labeled the Red Army, and their various opponents were the White Army. The Bolsheviks were better organized and had stronger military support, giving them a distinct advantage. A few weeks later, on July 17, 1918, Tsar Nicholas II, his wife, their four children, and their attendants were brought into the basement of their home and shot to death. The Situation in France While things in France were not as bad as in Russia, they were still pretty awful. Much of the fighting in Europe had taken place on French soil. French officers used 19th century tactics against an enemy armed with 20th century weapons. They had a habit of ordering suicide charges into no man's land, resulting in hundreds of thousands of unnecessary deaths. Trench warfare was bad all around, but the conditions in the French trenches were the worst. French soldiers often found themselves sleeping atop the shallow graves of their comrades who came before them. French military policies further weakened morale. Unlike the British, who rotated their soldiers back home every few months, French soldiers spent long stretches of time in their filthy, unhygienic trenches with no breaks. In April 1917, the French military command came up with another suicidal plan called the Nivelle Offensive. They believed this was the silver bullet that would finally break the Germans. Together with thousands of British troops, the offensive started off well before getting bogged down by German machine guns and barbed wire. Once again, the French suffered thousands of casualties, losing nearly 90,000 men within the first few days. Demoralized and exhausted, the French soldiers who survived this debacle refused to go any further. Though some labeled it a mutiny, it was in fact just a refusal to obey incompetent leadership. The French soldiers did not turn against their commanding officers and they continued to defend and hold their positions. They simply refused to do any more suicidal charges into German machine guns. The French politicians in Paris were shocked to hear these stories from the front line. The French Parliament blamed the Prime Minister for this failure and the overall progress of the war. A new Prime Minister was chosen, an old politician named Georges Clemenceau. At 76 years of age, Georges Clemenceau was a bitter, angry, lifelong politician. Having created many enemies during his long political career, he was the last person the French wanted as Prime Minister. Like his British counterpart, Lloyd George, Clemenceau hated the Germans and rejected any suggestions to negotiate. However, unlike Lloyd George, Clemenceau was against French colonial expansion. He believed Germany encouraged France's colonial adventures to create conflict with Britain. He also believed colonialism led to corruption and distracted from issues at home. Decades earlier, Clemenceau had opposed France's involvement in North Africa and Southeast Asia, predicting that they would drain the nation's military and wealth. He turned out to be right. Forty years later, France would be entangled in brutal uprisings in Algeria and Vietnam. But at the time, his opposition was unpopular and led to his political isolation. That is, until November 1917, when the French president chose him to become prime minister and take charge of the nation's war effort. As for British Prime Minister Lloyd George, France could not have chosen a better person. Lloyd George and George Clemenceau were both determined to defeat Germany. However, since Clemenceau wanted to focus on Europe, Lloyd George could have his way with the Middle East. Clemenceau did not press French claims to Palestine and went along with British plans to create a Jewish state in the region. Lloyd George was now free to shape the Middle East to his liking. In the next episode, we'll see how Lloyd George's imperial aspirations, along with his commitment to the Zionist movement, led to the Balfour Declaration. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit islamichistorypodcast.com slash WWI to find other episodes in this series. To learn more about the life of the last messenger of God, subscribe to our other show, the Prophet Muhammad Podcast. If you enjoyed these podcasts, please leave a five-star rating and review and share with your friends and family. The Islamic History Podcast is 100% listener-supported. You can support our work and get access to exclusive content by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash History. Stay tuned for a brief clip from one of these premium shows. Or, to make a one-time donation... Visit Islamic Slash Donate. Special thanks to Brother Zulfi Siraj for his research and support of the show, and thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Assalamualaikum. welcome back to Islamic History Exclusive. This is the podcast exclusively for patreon subscribers of the Islamic history podcast and in this series we are discussing ibn Zubair's rebellion against the Umayyads and we are in episode seven of this series. Just a brief recap of the last episode we discussed how there were two major groups of Shiites in Kufa. One was called the Penitents, also known as Attawabun in Arabic. And there was another much smaller group who followed a man named Muhtar ibn Ubaid. The penitents, Atawabun, they were a group of Shiites who felt guilty for not supporting Hussein ibn Ali at the Battle of Karbala. And so their sole desire, their main mission in life, their sole reason for being was to avenge Hussein ibn Ali's death and the massacre of several members of his family at Karbala. Mukhtar, on the other hand, leader of the rival Shiite group in Kufa. Mukhtar had been an early supporter of Hussein ibn Ali. We mentioned how he was imprisoned by Umayyad ibn Ziyad, the Umayyad governor of Kufa, but he was not killed. Mukhtar was eventually freed and he made his way down to Mecca and he briefly joined up with Ibn Zubair in Mecca, particularly in the defense of Mecca against the siege, against the Umayyads during the siege of Mecca. But Mukhtar really wanted to do his own thing. And so after the Umayyad structure fell apart, he broke off from Ibn Zubair and he returned to Kufa to start up his own following. Ibn Zubayr's governor in Kufa was worried about both of these groups. He first tried to convince the penitents, who were the larger of the two Shiite groups, to work along with him. He reminded them that they had the same goal, which was to topple and destroy the Umayyad structure in their Caliphate, and also to get vengeance for Hussein Ibn Ali. But the penitents weren't really having it. And as for Muqtad, Ibn Zubayr's governor just wound up arresting him and putting him in prison. Mukhtar's group, being the later of the two groups, was much smaller than the uh, penitents, the Tawabun. So let's go on into this episode, which will mostly be about the Battle of al Wardah, where the penitents face off against the Umayyads. So the two groups of Shiites in Kufa, the penitents and those who follow Muhtada, they really did not respect Ibn Zubair's authority. They, they both felt, both groups felt that someone from Ali's, Ali ibn Talib's uh, lineage was supposed to be the caliph, and they weren't really ready to support Ibn Zubair. At the same time, however. They weren't ready to revolt against his authority in Kufa either. After all, their main focus was getting vengeance from Hussein and toppling the Umayyads. However, they were not willing to work with Ibn Zubair and his uh, associates in accomplishing the goal. This goal, because they felt that Ibn Zubair, uh, once he gained the upper hand, then their their secondary cause, which was to restore Ali's lineage to, to power, they felt that that would become impossible once Ibn Zubair came, uh, came to power. And so they weren't really to, they weren't willing to work with Ibn Zubair, but they also weren't ready to revolt against him. Their main purpose at this point in time, the penitents, that is, and the Shiite, and the other Shiite group, uh, those who follow Mukhtar, they both wanted to attack the Umayyads.